Well, I tell you what, we're going to open up to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7. And because um, I was thinking we want to do a little recap and run up to where we are tonight in Genesis 44 and 45. And you know, um, Stephen, or if some of you prefer Stephen, did the best job of that, I can imagine. When he was, uh, found himself with all these, uh, you know, Pharisees and the high priest and brought before them, accused of blasphemy, you know, and, and uh, he begins to tell them, he's just a deacon, and uh, he just begins to witness and tell them their history, being a Jew like they are. And uh, picking it up in verse 2, and he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, but even enough, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they would be in bondage to, I, I will judge, said God. And after that day they shall come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave them him a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, made him governor over Egypt for all his house. And now a famine and a great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And before we're done tonight, we'll be back to chapter, we'll see verse 13 there. But, uh, you know, he had to leave Simeon in Egypt. They did. They had to leave him there because uh, Joseph required that someone stay behind. And so they, you know, until they brought Benjamin, Joseph said, well, Simeon's going to stay. We studied last week and Jacob held out as long as he could. And the famine got severe, and finally he has to give in and send um, them all back with Benjamin because they, Joseph said, you'll not see my face unless you bring your younger, youngest brother, Benjamin. And they returned to Joseph with Benjamin and the money and the gifts that his father Jacob had sent with them. And then Joseph brings them to his house for a feast. He sets their place from the oldest to the youngest, their, to their astonishment. By the way, we didn't talk about it, but that is a 40 million to one chance that you could roll dice and get those 11 brothers in the right spot to sit them down. So Joseph knew something, and um, they had to be astonished at that. And then he sent them back, and this time he gave Benjamin five times, or uh, they sat down to eat, and this time he gave them five times the, uh, the food that he gave and the and the things that they were having for that feast to Benjamin 
over and above his brothers. And then we pick it up in Genesis 44. And we're going to read through that one and we'll come back and hopefully get through 45 as well. And so he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and were not far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up and follow them. When you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks, and which he indeed practices divination? And you have done evil in doing so, speaking about the cup. And so he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servant should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouths of our sacks, and now... And then how could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened the sack. And he he searched and began with the oldest, And left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes. Each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Well, then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like fellow Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or mother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young. His brother is dead, and he is left alone of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. And he said to my Lord, the lad, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face no more. And so it was when he, we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said we cannot go down if our youngest brother is uh, with us, then... We will go down. Or he said, if our youngest brother is with us, well, then we'll go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. 
The one went out from me, and I, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And so your servants will bring down to the gray, bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became a surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? So back in verses 1 and 2, they, they, they get up at dawn and head out. And, uh, but Joseph tells his servant, let's put this, uh, the money back, and my cup even, back in the, in the sack, sack of the youngest. And um, so he did. He put it in Benjamin's sack. And the next few verses, just as they reach outside of town, Joseph sends his servant to go catch up to him. He catches up and overtakes him. And he tells his servant exactly what to say. Make them explain why they would return evil for good that he had done. You know, he's still, he's still testing them. You know, explain why would you return evil? We had the feast, and why would you do that to, to me? And so in verses 6 through 13, he does, he overtakes them, he finds the goods, and they don't know why. I don't think they believe that anything's with them, that, uh, that they're going to find anything. Otherwise, why would they say, go ahead and kill the one whom you find it with? And so they don't know, and uh, they're pretty confident, I think, and sure that nobody took anything, and nevertheless, there it was. And they say, well, you know, uh, if whoever it is, kill him, and the rest of us will, will be your slaves. And so the servant says, you know, it'll be so, but not as much. It'll be that whoever took it will be the slave, and the rest of you can go free. And in verses uh, 6 through 13, you know, he, or in, uh, I should say, um, yeah, and the rest of that, he, they, they hurry to open their packages to check. And then there's the horror of it right there. They see, here it is in Benjamin's sack and the one that they were to watch over the most and be sure to bring back to Jacob. Um, his greatest concern, Jacob, was uh, losing that son and now it's come to pass. Um, and they're again helpless. They tear their clothes. They load up their donkeys and they head back in the city to see Joseph. And um, they're broken. Verses 14 through 17, they come to Joseph's house. They fall on their faces, completely humbled and vulnerable. And, you know, there's nothing. There's no hope. They're helpless. They have to acknowledge that they're speechless, it says. They're unable to justify themselves. And they say that it was God that has to have done this thing that brought this on them and completely exposed their iniquity. And they surrender themselves. To, to Joseph from that point on. And then verses 18 through 34, we have an interesting section where Judah, and uh, you know, we studied a little bit about Judah, and he might have had a little bit of a past, but um, in all, and uh, 
but he was also the guy, if you remember, he used to hang out in the city of Shechem with the wealthier crowd and all, and so he kind of steps up and takes a little bit of the lead on this, and he even stepped up with, with Jacob and uh, you know, took the lead and said, you know, Father, if, if they don't return Benjamin, then my life for his. I'm going to make my life a surety and insurance that uh, you'll get Benjamin back and they'll take my life instead. But Judah has to recount this. And, and he's basically what he's doing is interceding between Joseph and Benjamin and Benjamin's father, Jacob. And uh, so here's Judah now interceding for Benjamin. And he comes near to him. And, and uh, first, thing he, first thing we see when we just look at the list, if you ever, uh, and we talk about it a lot, but just looking through verses 18 through 34, and make a list of all the things that Judah would, had, did, had done and did to, to show and to make intercession, to make his, his case. First thing it says is he comes near. He steps out from his brothers and draws close to Joseph. And then he asks. He doesn't just come in and start arguing and, and, and uh, you know, negotiating. He asks and says, may I speak? And then, if you remember Abraham, when the Lord was going down to Sodom and Gomorrah, he asked him if there's 50 righteous, and if there's 40, and if there's 30. And he says, hey, don't be angry if there's even 30. And please, once more, don't be angry with your servant if there's 20, and, and then even 10. So he says to Joseph, don't be angry. I'm asking for my, my brother. He says, you asked us about our family details, and we told you everything, even to the most dear thing to our father's heart, his youngest brother, Benjamin. And he's the only one remaining of his love, Rachel. And then you hear that, and you require that very thing from us, you require, you keep Simeon, and you require that we go get that Benjamin, the very thing. And now, until we were desperate for food, we wouldn't come down. And now, finally, we're desperate for food, and we have to come back. And we had to take our youngest brother from our father and from him and bring him to you. Or you wouldn't even see us, and we wouldn't be able to buy grain. So Joseph had put them in this impossible situation. You know, they didn't know. He knew. He knew them. And, and he knew what he was going to do and his reason. You know, he was testing them, but he was also being sure that he could, could trust them and also bring his father down and see him once more, even asking, you know, is he still well and all. And, uh, but they said to him, Judah says to him, and, you know, he's, he's the surety. I've given my father the surety that I would be for that youngest brother, Benjamin. We have brought our brother, brother, and if anything would happen to him, it would completely bereave our father and bring him to his grave in great sorrow. If we return to him and Benjamin is not with us, our father's going to die. If I've, and I've made myself a, a surety for him, and I cannot return to my father and see what happens to him if he sees Benjamin's not with me. And so he makes his case. Judah intercedes for, uh, before Joseph on behalf of uh, Benjamin and Jacob. But notice how he takes his place and accepts the punishment to save Benjamin's life and restore him back to Jacob. And so the application, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy, um, 
what's going on here is, is he's interceding. He's going before Joseph. Uh, he, like I said, he's not, uh, he's not arguing. He's not trying to negotiate. He's just laying down his life for him. And just one verse, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul, speaking to Timothy, the young pastor, you know, um, how to fight the good fight. And, um, you know, committing the charge to Timothy as a, a young pastor. And according to the prophecies, just looking back a few verses leading up to it, you know, having faith and a good conscience um, in those that gave him trouble that had given up the faith and didn't have a good conscience. But then he says, therefore, I exhort. In other words, I encourage, but with a little bit of uh, strength to it, not just a, not just a suggestion, an exhortation. Um, first of all, and here's the list, all that supplications, uh, prayers, intercessions, and giving in thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, even today, after yesterday, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and reverence. But there's the thing. It's, it's supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Um, the word supplication there is seeking, asking, and entreating for one's needs and wants is how that's used throughout Scripture. Um, you know, he's just there. Just like uh, when Judah came to Joseph, he says, can I, can I come close? Can I, can I ask you? Can I talk to you? Please don't be angry. You know, seeking, asking, entreating uh, to approach. That's what supplications are. Prayer is kind of interesting. You know, we know what prayer is. We talk about it. We, we pray. We seek the Lord. We, um, but the word there, pray, prayer, is interesting. It sim simply means suitable to come. And I thought, that's an interesting definition. If you want to look it up uh, in, in your, like, uh, Blue Letter Bible, your, your concordances, the definition is, is really to put yourself in a place suitable to come before God. And, you know, Jesus went off to pray, often by himself, uh, to avoid distraction, to show reverence to the Father, setting himself in a place where he can give his whole heart and mind in prayer. Um, now, he told us not to pray before men, right? He says, uh, you know, to be heard by men, to appear spiritual, to receive the accolades of men. And said, so he said, go in your closet, right? And, and pray where no one can see you and... and my Father in heaven will reward you openly. But it was their hearts that desired recognition that was the issue, what he's talking about. There's nothing special about being in a closet other than the lack of distractions and the fact that you're keeping yourself from, from pontificating in front of people and looking for the accolades of people. The deal was, or the reason was, the issue was, you know, it was their heart's desire to have that recognition, these Pharisees, and they would intentionally pray in public and, and in order to be heard by men more than to even be heard by God so they could keep their positions and they could appear to be doing their, their um, ministry, I guess. But he said, get alone somewhere, you know. And we are also told, though, um, to gather together, to come before the Lord as one, to be like-minded, that's so pleasing to him. 
and to have one heart towards him, you know, because indeed he loves us, and what does he desire from us? That we love one another, and that, that his love for us begins to show in our lives towards one another, and even says that that's how the world will know that we are his. And, um, but the, it begs the, the, def, or the, the question, what is a suitable prayer? And um, to, it's to have a sincerity of heart that's aware of his presence. And we're kind of seeing a little bit of that when we see how Judah approached Joseph. You know, being aware and putting yourself in a, in a position of humility and suitable to be sincere in the presence of God, a holy God, a righteous God, regardless of who is around and who hears it or not. You know, that's, that's got to be your heart towards the Lord. I'm easily distracted. I usually have to go find somewhere to be alone. But that doesn't mean I can't come before him anywhere, you know, in my, my heart of hearts. Um, you know, any, like a conversation. Um, you know, not to have any less sincerity towards him just because somebody's around. Now, I'm kind of a self-conscious daydreamer kind of guy. And so for me... I'm very easily distracted. And, you know, while in a conversation with people, I often fail by, you know, somebody's talking to me and, you know, ask Mary, she knows, you know, it's like that sometimes. And all of a sudden you're drifting off somewhere else and, and you're not paying attention. And that really is not love. And that really is not, and that really is rude, honestly, isn't it? Um, but that's kind of a, a, maybe a fault of mine for, you know, um, being, uh, you know, a daydreamer, or, or um, easily distracted, if you will. Well, the same is true in prayer, isn't it? To, you know, to, to what, do they, what do they say, be in the room? You know, if you're going to be, you know, with people, well, be in the room. Don't be daydreaming about something else. Be where people are, are you can talk to you, and you can talk to them, and they have your attention, and, and um, you know, they'll give you uh, their attention, and and so the, true, the same is true in prayer. We, we have to kind of be in the room with the Lord. It's not just something we're hearing ourselves repeat. It's something where we're, we're fully aware that we're in his presence and we, we act like it. And we, we live like it. It's in our hearts to be like that. It's not even something we try to do. It's something that we just simply acknowledge and, and be in his presence in prayer. Now it's up to us to come before him in our hearts and minds and he doesn't look at the outward, right? He looks at the inward, hearts of men and women. And no matter where we are or who we're with, he's still looking at our hearts. It doesn't change because there's other people around. And so, you know, that's the suitable way to pray. Just in the room with the Lord and not just with empty words and repeating things. You know, the Lord said vain repetitions are just meaningless to him to continue to repeat the same thing. You know, I grew up in a denomination. It was, you know, you're so used to spewing out the, the table prayer from the time you're two years old and can talk that you don't even think about it. You just, blah, 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 right down the line, you guys probably know, know, know which one I'm talking about. But uh, it was never really a thing of the heart until I chose to make it a thing of the heart and, and give it to the Lord and do it as unto him. And then it, wasn't even that prayer anymore. It's the real thing that's on my heart and mind. The real thanks that I have for the things he's given us and the food he's given us and 
you know, coming on winter, the heat and the roof he puts over our head and, and um, you know, the, all that we should be grateful for and we'll get to that in a little bit. The next one in the list for Timothy is intercessions. Interesting definition there. It means falling in with, to meet, to converse, to come together with. And it's really just like Judah who put himself with Benjamin and Joseph right in the middle there. And at the place where Joseph was going to determine the fate of his youngest brother. That's that intercession. He puts himself right in there and says, you know, in, in that situation, not to argue or negotiate, but to stand in and be the one that's going to bear the consequences. And same for us. We're told to bear one another's burdens. And, you know, you, when, you, we, when we go around the circle on Saturday mornings at men's prayer, you know, you, you listen to the prayer requests of the person on your right, and that's just how we do it. We go around and we pray for that person. And we bear that burden and we intercede for them to the Lord. We lift up that brother's prayer request, and the ladies do the same at the women's prayer. And um, we do that anytime we're praying together, men and women together, even tonight, hoping that, that we're interceding, hoping that the Lord's leading us in how we pray so that you know, we're, we're lifting up what's taking place here tonight, lifting up what's going to happen when, when we go from here and putting it in the Lord's hands, making interse- intercession to just uh, put ourselves in the lives of those here so that we can you know, intercede to the Lord for that. And then we can uh, uh, go out and do what he's uh, called us to do. In the same way we would come before God for the needs of others, because of our love for them and God's love for them. Um, we can do that because we know how much God loves us and how much he loves you and uh, each one of us he loves. And so how, how much more easy is it for us to make intercession knowing how much he loves? And, you know, it's funny, two stories, I, for lack of time, but Moses, the Lord had been... We're going to get to it if we get through Exodus and onward and so forth. But the children of Israel were going through the desert and they had complained and complained and finally to the point where they just were not believing the Lord. They weren't trusting the Lord. And the Lord said, I've had enough. I'm going to wipe these people out and start with a new batch. And Moses literally said to the Lord, Father, you love these people. And not only that, the nations around are going to look at this and go, well, whose people are these anyways if they weren't yours? And so Moses said, Lord, Take me, kill, you know, wipe me out, but keep your people. I'll stand in their place. And Moses did that for them. What's fascinating to me and actually kind of shocking is Apostle Paul did the same thing for the Jewish people. He said that he would give up his eternity with the Lord for the sake of his Jewish brothers and sisters, for the sake of Israel, his nation, his, his, uh, his people. And uh, to the point that that would be so unthinkable that an eternity, to give up your eternity, but that was that kind of love. That was that kind of intercession that was taking place. Now, we do all this in Jesus' name. And we do it coming through him to Almighty God, who is holy, because Jesus already did take the consequences, right? Judah was going to step in, take the consequences for what, Benjamin, what they found in Benjamin's packages. And so, in the same way, though, when we intercede on somebody's behalf, 
It's not that we would, we do love and would bear one another's burdens, but when it comes to sin, when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to, we pray, and we now can pray through Jesus Christ because Jesus actually took the punishment for them. And we can intercede on behalf of those that we're seeking to come to him and uh, that we want to just lift up for him, for illnesses or for um, uh, just salvation. We can come to him, uh, come to Almighty God through Jesus because he did already take the consequences for all sin. And he is indeed the mediator between God and man, just one mediator. Um, and then the last one is the giving of thanks. The words um, and the heart that are truly grateful to our Savior. You know, thanksgiving, the definition is just thanksgiving. Giving thanks, being grateful, showing gratitude with a sincere heart towards that. Grateful to our Savior for providing for us, protecting us, bringing us to himself, giving us everlasting life. It's good to understand right now, in a couple of weeks we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving, but you know, it's, it's all the time, isn't it? Uh, whenever we eat, whenever, you know, give thanks, um, whenever we uh, get a paycheck, you know, whenever the Lord allows us to uh, receive the good things, uh, we're so thankful for it, and it's good to understand that. Now, a lot of times, please and thank you is just a courtesy. People think about it, you know, yes, thanks, good job, whatever, I don't know. Um, but to, to be honest, it's, it's a great joy, even to parents, when their kids show them how grateful they are and how they provide for him, for them, and how much more our Heavenly Father, who gives us all things, is overjoyed to, when we give him thanks. We'll, we'll see uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel is up and down with their relationship with the Lord. And half the time he just says, you know, you're not even thankful. And it's, uh, you know, conversely, how hurtful for us to see complete ingratitude from those we love, maybe from our kids, and the ones that we care so deeply for. I've even heard it said, you can forgive your kids for just about anything except ungrateful, you know, unthankful, ingratitude. You know, consider how much God has done for us. And it is he who continues also to intercede for us. If you want to look at Romans 8, Romans 8, just a few verses, 26 through 35. So likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Um, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He is, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, for uh, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who, shall, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? For it's written, and he goes on, for, for your sake we are killed all the day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And uh, talking about uh, the things that they suffer. But just to, to make a list of how and what the Holy Spirit does when he makes intercession for us. First of all, when we don't even know how to pray, you know, he's interceding on our behalf. Even things that cannot be uttered, even things you don't know how to say, and then there's groans. You know, sometimes all we can do is just groan and sigh. And he knows what that means, and he can interpret that. He knows our hearts and what's grieving us or what's causing us that. And he's interceding for us and putting himself in our place. He searches the hearts. He searches our heart. Now he prays, the Holy Spirit prays, according to the will of God for us. Now God is for us. He's not against us. We see that. He did not spare his son so we could have all things and inherit eternal life. And then he goes on to say, who can bring an accusation against us because of that? Jesus was the one that was condemned to death for our sin. He's the one that rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And it says he ever makes intercession for us to the Father. You know, intercession, putting himself in our place like he did. Uh, turn to Hebrews 7 for a few verses. What does that look like in heaven when we pray and when Jesus intercedes and makes intercession for us to the Father. Hebrews 7, just 20 through 25. It says, And inasmuch he was not made priest without an oath. For they that become priests without an oath, uh, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest according to the order, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And by so much more, Jesus has become a surety. Remember Judah? What Judah did? He became a surety for Benjamin. He became the surety of a better covenant. Also, there are many priests because they were uh, prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. You know, Jesus is our priest forever. He is our surety, like Judah. And he lives to make intercession for us. And the result is, it says to the uttermost, the worst sinner to the uttermost of humanity can be saved if they come to God through him. He's saved to the uttermost. And so just going over to John 17, um, John is the, the Lord's prayer, you know. He, he, um, it's the entire prayer 
the entire chapter is the prayer, and it's really a, a prayer of intercession. But just to look at a few things picking out of there, um, just to find what Jesus specifically intercedes for on our behalf, and looking at verse 11, it says, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may become as we are. You know, keep through your name those you've given me, and also that they would become, even as the Father and the Son are, of one. They're, they're one. The two are one. And down in verse 15, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. How is he interceding for us right now? That he keeps us from the evil one. Not to take them out of the world, but to keep us from the enemy. And so verse 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. And he says, Your word is truth. You know, Jesus prays and intercedes for us about what we're doing here tonight. That by studying his word, and when you're at home in the morning, you wake up and you do a devotional to get your heart set on something you know, other than what the world's screaming at you about. And when you go to bed at night, the last thing you maybe do is read a psalm or some proverbs, and you get peace and, and all. But he's interceding for us to the Father so that while we're doing what we're doing right here tonight, that we would become one, and that we'd become like the Father and the Son are one together. You know, in, and he says, you know, sanctify, set us apart by your truth, studying the word, you know, so that we could be set apart to God. That's what he's interceding for us for, that while we do this, we become more and more sanctified. And you know what I mean, set apart to the Lord, not sanctimonious. Big difference. And then in verse 20 and 21, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So now he's praying for all believers. Previously up to 19, he's praying for his disciples that were with him. But the, truth, the same is true. He's praying for us as well, because we believe in their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, and I, or as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He's interceding so that what takes place here and what takes place in your devotions and in your own hearts and getting into the word, he's interceding that that's going to make you uh, and how we as a fellowship and you among brethren, wherever you find brothers and sisters in this world and in, in the society, that they see that oneness and from that the world would be drawn to the Father. And then in verse 23, he says, I in them, you and me, that they may be perfect in one, be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so that world knows, that, you, that the world would know that you love them. And it's the world, you know. It's, it's not just that we get to reassure one another and we can bounce around churches and, and be happy there. It's that when we go out into the world, the world knows this and recognizes this about us. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the gift of evangelism to let people know just by how you act. And, you know, like they say, you know, you can share the gospel all the time. And sometimes you may have to even use words, you know. 
but uh, just by living the life, by being truthful, by, by doing the best you can at your job, by doing the best you can in your family for your wife or your husband and being, uh, raising up godly children and all. It's a light to the world and he actually is interceding on our, our behalf so that they may know that we have the one true God, not just some idol or some false God, but the one that indeed loves them as well and they can see it in us. So, you know, back in Genesis, Judah says, please take me and not Benjamin, lest the worst of evils fall on my father. And he sees that we didn't bring Benjamin back and he dies. In chapter 45, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Imagine that. 20 years gone. 27 years gone. And there he is. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near, and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. And this is one you should underline. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years a famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't tarry. And ye shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, and the flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come, all that you have come to poverty. For there is still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after this his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded to do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. And also do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. 
he gave to all of them to each changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things. Ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and food for his father for the journey. And he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he sent, said to them, See that you don't become troubled along the way. And they went up to the, uh, out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. He is governor over all the land. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to him, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, It is enough that Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Uncontrollable emotion. You know, like we talked about last week, that joy that Joseph is now able to reveal himself to his brothers. And, uh, and you know, they're speechless. They're dismayed. The word there is the same Actually, it's the first time this word appears in the Bible in the original Hebrew, but uh, it means to be terrified, but it's also with that amazement. In other words, this is something that we can't even understand. We're absolutely amazed to the point of being terrified, but still um, mostly on that amazement side, not like they're terrorized like when they had found the uh, the money put back in their, their packages when they had went back the first time when we looked at fear. But then Joseph tells them, it is not you, but God that has sent me before you to preserve life. And so, like I said, he's now 39 to 40 years old. It's been over 20 years that they sold him into slavery, 23, you know, uh, possibly that uh, have gone by and they have not seen him. And you can imagine how, you know, stunning that would be, how shocking that would be. I don't know if you know anybody that's been 25 years gone, and if they were to show up to you looking like they, you know, never been gone, and um, they recognized him. You know, you see him. You see me with my, with your your own eyes. You see what I'm saying to you. Now, you got to ask: Is there anything in your life that God began? you know, that long ago. Maybe it's been 20, 30 years or 10, 20 years or even more. And you know now that he meant it for good to preserve life. Back then, it might have seemed like evil. And yet here you are knowing, looking back on that, that indeed the Lord did that thing in your life that seemed evil. And yet here you are knowing that he did it to preserve your life, whatever it may be. And... Um, there are things people do to us, and as far as they're concerned, uh, his brothers knew what they did. Remember how terrible they felt and how broken they were when, when um, they realized uh, that they were suffering and they thought, this has got to be because of what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. It's the first thing that popped into their heads. You know, you might have something popping into your head now, and maybe it's not yet revealed what it is going to be, like Joseph was revealed, but that in a time maybe not too far down the road, you realize indeed that God had done that in your life so that now later in life he's going to preserve life through that. In verses 9 through 15, well now they see it's Joseph and they weep 
together and talk together. And it implies, implies there that it's for a long time. So the converse is true. Here's his brothers. They are the ones that did something evil 20-some years ago. Is there something that we did to somebody else 20 years ago? And we feel the shame of it. Or 10 years ago. Or, you know, two years ago. There's no big time limit on this. That maybe you give to the Lord. Maybe you acknowledge it. And you confess and you repent and you turn from that. You know the shame of it. And you can't bear the shame of it. So you give it to the Lord. And he takes that shame. He takes that guilt. And maybe there's a time that's going to come that whoever you did that harm to, that they'll come back to you and say, you know what, God did something because of that. And you meant it for evil, but God ended up doing something for good with that. Because a lot of times we can carry something around thinking how we've, how we've uh, what we happened before we got saved or even maybe making a foolish mistake after we got saved and we think of the damage and the, and the shame that that has brought on the Lord on his name because we maybe claim to be Christians and maybe we did it out of ignorance, maybe we did it out of spite, I don't know, but there's a way that through coming to the Lord that he will then turn that to good. Even if it's something that everybody still knows who you are. If you want to turn to Luke 19, um, just for one example, we all love the tax collector. They're so kind to us. If that's what you do for a living, I'm sorry, but, you know. <laughs> um, story of Zacchaeus. Um, just the first ten verses. There was a guy, Jesus pa passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and he came down, and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be guest with a man who is a sinner. You know, the tax collector, he's been, you know, these, these guys were known for scraping a whole bit off the top, so maybe the tax was 10%. Well, they were charging 25%, so they could get rich on that 15 And they had Roman soldiers going around with them, and they were trying to get their cut too. So when these guys came around, it was, a, it was sin. It was evil that they were stealing from these people, rich or poor. And so he made haste to come down to receive them joyfully, but when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I have given half of my goods to the poor, first thing. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So here's, just think if you're the, the poor guy down the street, you know, you're just scraping by, and here comes the tax man with a couple of, of soldiers to, to clean you out for everything they could possibly clean you out for. And here, Jesus, the great hope of the poor, the great, you know, they, they were so, so trusting in the Lord to save them. 
and the poor were so trusting. He was the one that was feeding them, you know, giving, feeding the 5,000 with bread and fish and, and the 4,000. And, and so people would come to him and the word was getting out. This is the one. He's the Messiah. He's going to bring, you know, the kingdom and all. And so here he's going down and he's eating with that tax collector. He's the one that's put me in this poverty. You know, and so what is the end result of this? Well, he's now saved. And now he's giving back fourfold from those very same people. Maybe, you know, to preserve their lives. And so it's just a, a little bit of an example. All this time he returns what he stole and gives to the poor. And from the perspective of that poor family, you know, that watched their poverty get worse every tax time, now their lives are being preserved after who knows long how long that they were in poverty. Now, kind of a little bit of an example there, but, and a, you know, a testimony, an example for us. Our testimony, we used to be heathen. You know, uh, you were not born saved. You were not born, born again. You were born once, then you believed, and you were saved. You were born again the second time by the Spirit. Before that, I'm sure if you're anything like me, or any, maybe you don't want to admit it or you can't think of it, but you hurt people. People get hurt. And uh, if you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And uh, that will affect other lives. Um, so our testimony of salvation and our repentance and the efforts, you know, when, when he tells them, you know, he, Zacchaeus just knows to do it. He says, look, I'm giving back. I'm looking at all these people. They're wondering why you're coming to my house, so I'm, I'm giving it back. There was a Roman soldier that came to the Lord who, who also did that. He took more than what he was supposed to, and, and he was basically kind of, you know, being the, the neighborhood strong arm to go and, and get protection money from people and all. And, and Jesus said to him, you know, what you need to do is you need to restore back what you stole from people. And that's the same for us. If we have done those things, to the much as our ability and through prayer and seeking that the Lord provide for it, to make efforts to restore as much as we can to those that we did evil to. Certainly to, to reconcile if possible, you know, and, um, you know, by showing those ones that we harmed, that God forgave, redeemed, and changed us. And he can save, redeem, and change them also. And, um, you know, it's, uh, he saves their life. He preserves their soul and spirit for his kingdom and eternal life. And uh, that's what happened to us. That's what we can say to them as we reconcile with them. And he uses our lives that we tried and meant for evil. And he turns around and uses it for good to preserve life for those around us. If they will, you know. Pharaoh uh, hears this and he tells uh, Joseph to bring provisions and go get Jacob and gives him all the best of the land and the land of Goshen. So Jake, Joseph sends him and provides for the journey and he gives Benjamin five times. Now, maybe so Jacob knows that the favor Joseph had for his brother, uh, you know, by Rachel the one whom he loved. Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin. That was it. Rachel was the one that Jacob loved. And you remember the story with Laban. But he advises his brothers and he warns them, don't be troubled. 
And what that really means, in some translations, you're probably looking at it, it says, don't quarrel amongst one another. Here they are, they're going back now, and uh, so far every time they had to go back, they were, you know, going with uh, provisions, but then something happens and goes wrong. He says, don't be troubled about that, but also don't quarrel with one another. Again, it's not you who did this to me. God did this for, so that he'd provide and for a posterity. And so uh, he warns them, he advises them not to be troubled and not to quarrel on the way. You know, it's fair to say there's probably some of them that are blaming somebody else. You know, Reuben was blaming you guys. You know, I wanted to take him out, remember, back at the well. And, you know, Judah wanted to make some money off him, so they sold him into slavery. And, you know, everybody could have been pointing the finger. But no, you know, don't do that. He says, don't quarrel. Um, so in the last few verses, um, they come to Jacob and, and tell him Joseph is alive. Not only that, he's the governor of all Egypt. And it says Jacob's heart, his inner man, his mind, his understanding. And it says it stood still. And that word stood still means really it goes numb. It means feeble and fainted. But it means numb. In other words, I don't know what to feel. Joseph's alive. Joseph rules Egypt. It's too much to handle. It's been, like we said, you know, 20-some years. In his mind, in his heart, his understanding can't handle it and just goes numb, kind of a shock. But then he sees the loads of provisions, and he's revived. Then it's there right in front of him. He's not having to believe what they're saying. He's seeing what came down the road. And Jacob latches on to more than anything else through all of this. Yeah, the food is great. The going to Egypt's great, but what's the best thing? Joseph has been alive this whole time. That's what he held on to. That's what he latched on to. You know, even in the oldest age, when you hear and see such good things from the Lord, uh, it revives. It brings true joy. There's no point when, uh, if, you, if you're seeking the Lord for good things, there's no point in your life when it happens that doesn't give you great joy, and it revives. It brings a new life, uh, a new joy to you. And again, God intended this for good, not just for Jacob's family. Indeed, this is the birth of a nation. We are right now witnessing the birth of not Israel who wrestled with God, Israel, the sons of Israel, who are now becoming a nation together, going down, traveling. No more pilgrims in the land, no, no more sojourners in the land of Canaan. Now they're going down into Egypt, and this is the birth of a nation, Israel. Now, it's also the Israel of today, whom God gave the world. And throughout the Old Testament, he gave his word through this nation, and through whom God gave his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. The nation that God in these last days will show himself faithful so that the world will know that he is almighty God and will judge in all the earth. Again, Psalm 2. You know, he said, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, he says, kiss the son lest he be angry. And so he's talking about his son, Jesus Christ, in Psalm 2. And um, through that, that he would judge the nations of the world and bring them before Zion as he does it because he's going to judge the nations of the world on how they treated Israel. And certainly... Because the gospel went out and they didn't believe. That's, that's the, the sin 
of unbelief. But when it comes time at the end of the age and he brings them by the th uh, his throne, which is in Zion, and again, that's Psalm 2. Uh, but uh, then it's, it's here where I think, you know, we handed out those sheets a while back about the parallels of Joseph's life, uh, the parallels with Jesus and his life. But this really here, when he reveals himself to his brethren who didn't know him for 20-some uh, years, thought, thought he was dead, and now after two millennia, Jesus will soon show himself to that Jewish nation. And this is where it really began with scholars that started to see the parallels in, in Joseph's life uh, to Jesus when they see how here he is, he reveals himself to them. And if you want to turn to Zechariah 12.10, these things are so close to happening right now because the, whale, the, the world is becoming so evil. I really got no desire to talk about politics except to say this. Almost the entire world is going left. Almost the entire world. Look at Brazil. They used to have the Trump of Brazil, and now he's been voted out. And Israel just put Bibi back in, and he's got a strong government to go with it. Israel is going right. The rest of the world is going left. Sparks are going to fly. And what does the Bible say? He says that all the, the face of every nation on earth will be against Israel so that when Jesus comes back and puts his, mount, his foot on Mount Zion, that he will be able to judge the earth and they will know that he is God because of that, it says in Ezekiel. But in Zechariah 12.10, you know he's talking about saving Israel, background of this, but it says in 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. What happened when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers? They were shocked. They couldn't believe it. This is the one that we threw in the, in the well. And Israel, once again, when they see Jesus, there's... You know, I haven't personally seen this or read this, but I think it was David Hawking that said that, uh, you know, he talks to, he's got friends all over the world in all kinds of various places, and he, he uh, talking to a general, the generals of the, when he was there in the past, about when they know what the New Testament says. You know, you go to Israel, and they know what the New Testament says. Um, but... Uh, when Jesus would put his foot down on the Mount of Olives, the generals told him they will humbly walk up to him and ask, can we see your hands? Why? Well, because they want to see if there's nail holes. Is he really the one? You know, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. But, you know, when he comes again, as they have been told by us and throughout the generations, you know, we're enemies of Israel for the sake of the cross. They're enemies of the cross, but they're still elect by God, it says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so all I can say is, come Lord Jesus. Amen. So Father, we do pray that, uh, you know, as you make intercession for us, 
to the Father that, Lord, we could just be aware of that and, and as we lift up our friends and loved ones to you and make intercession for them, Lord, we know our words fall so short, and, but we put our confidence in your love for them because you love them more than we can even know except for how much you love us. And so we know that's true. And so we can lift up and intercede for them uh, to you, and we know that you're interceding for us always. And so, Lord, we just want to have that faith. We want to be able to have that peace and the rest that comes from that and to be able to walk with you and uh, always be able to pray, not worried about what people might think or say and not trying to pray before men, Lord, but that we can just seek you and know that it's you, have that confidence to be in the room and know that you're in the room because you said you'd never leave us, you'd never forsake us, and you'd never leave our side. So we, we just pray that you'd go with us. I pray that uh, you would use your word to change our lives and that it would be a witness to the lost world and that we could draw men to you and lift you up. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.